The Old Testament passage this week is from the Old Testament. Uh, It's Psalm 8, which is found at page 539 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 8, a psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is John 16, 12 through 15, which can be found on page 1083 in your pew Bibles. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will, glor- he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said to the Spirit, I, that, that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. morning. My name is Joanna Wigboldy. I am a member here at Sherman Street, and uh, my pastoral call is to Calvin University, so that's where I spend most of my time. Uh, Today is Trinity Sunday. Uh, I really love when the liturgy does a lot of the preaching for me, so when I've gotten up here and you already have an idea of what Trinity Sunday is. Uh, That's just beautiful to me and makes my job a lot easier. Um, Trinity Sunday is unique in the Christian year because um, it's a doctrine, not an event. Most of the Christian year is focused on uh, specific events in the life of Jesus. And then we have uh, the Trinity. It's It's a theological concept. It's a way that God reveals God's self to us. I noticed yesterday on a theological Twitter that um, a tweet that said, sermons on this day, Trinity Sunday, will range from dangerously heretical to wholly insufficient. So I'm hoping to sort of thread that needle, uh, but I'll probably be leaning on the wholly insufficient side. What's beautiful about Trinity Sunday 
what's beautiful about the Trinity is that God reveals God's self as triune as a way to invite us into the breadth and depth of the God that we worship. So let's turn our attention to the scripture passages for today and uh, just kind of dip our toe in um, to see what God reveals to us about God's self. I'm going to spend uh, most of the, my time this morning in the John scripture passage, which actually doesn't do much to clarify our understanding of the Trinity. But it does give us a jumping off point from which to explore how God reveals God's self as three in one through really the entire Gospel of John. So let's zoom out from this rather enigmatic passage to get a sense of the wider context. This passage is part of like a three-chapter section called, or known as Jesus' farewell discourse. It's like his last words to the disciples, but um, they don't really know that yet. So they're in the upper room, and Jesus has already done a few weird things. He has washed their feet, which uh, is not a usual thing in that cultural context, also not a usual thing in our cultural context, but for different reasons. Jesus has sent Judas away, kind of mysteriously, and now Jesus is on this sort of extended soapbox. So let's put ourselves in the upper room during Jesus' last night with the disciples. As Jesus speaks, the disciples aren't saying anything, but they must be getting nervous. I imagine them looking at each other with this, like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? This is weird, right? Like, we should be getting nervous about this kind of look. Because Jesus' words are kind of reminiscent of a deathbed monologue. Maybe one of the disciples is remembering the words of comfort and advice a loved one gave them on their deathbed. Something like, you know I love you. You're going to be okay. Don't forget to ask for help. Uh, Take care of your sisters. Sort of these like last words of advice. And you can see the disciples kind of shifting in their seats a bit in these pained looks developing on their faces as they realize that Jesus' words have the same feel. Jesus is saying things like, my children, I will be with you only for a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. Will you lay down your life for me? Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am going to the Father. Pain and confusion turn to fear as they imagine what their lives might be like without Jesus. Jesus has been living among them for years. They have been drawn into the life of God because God has made God's dwelling among them. And it's been hard and weird and amazing, but the grief that they feel when they imagine doing life without their dearest friend is almost more than they can bear. Jesus' words give them a strong sense of abandonment, especially the words Jesus says as he continues this discourse. If the world hates you now, keep in mind that it hated me first. They persecuted me, they will persecute you also. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And it culminates with the opening sentence from today's reading, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. Here sit the disciples in the upper room, 
Jesus is telling them he's about to abandon them, the world hates them, will persecute them, might even kill them, and there's more, but that part is too hard to hear. I'm an Enneagram six. So, <laughs> Lindsay knows what an Enneagram six is. I have a tendency to go to the worst case scenario. So I imagine all of the disciples thinking about all these terrible ways they could be abandoned by Jesus. But after they disperse from the upper room, what actually happens is even worse than any of the worst case scenarios they had imagined. The plot that the religious leaders began planning as soon as they heard Jesus say that he's God goes into action. The religious leaders bring Jesus before the Roman authorities and those authorities authorize them to execute Jesus. Roughly a day after Jesus' words to the disciples in the upper room, Jesus is dead. The disciples' fear of abandonment has been realized. They can't imagine how this could possibly end well. Isn't it over? We know it's not over. Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to the disciples. And he doesn't say, I'm back and I'm never going to leave you again. Instead, he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, scholars agree that this is not when the disciples actually receive the Holy Spirit. We read that story last week, which uh, happens when the disciples are in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Instead, this is a promise of the coming Holy Spirit, Jesus' way of saying, I'm not abandoning you. But the disciples don't know it yet. Jesus is going to leave again. This time, he will ascend to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, But Jesus keeps promising the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's presence mean that the disciples will not be left alone. Jesus is not abandoning them. It's hard for them to imagine, probably hard for us to imagine, but having the Spirit of Jesus with them is even better than what they've been experiencing, having been in the physical presence of Jesus over the last several years. So I'm going to ask you to zoom out again, even more, to find out the significance of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why is it better to have the Holy Spirit when when you've had Jesus with you in person for years? Why is it necessary? Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a father-son metaphor to describe his relationship to the creator. It's male-heavy language, and maybe you've already noticed and cringed at the male-heavy language I've been using uh, so far this morning. And it doesn't sit the same in our cultural context, but it was very significant in Jesus' cultural context, especially the part where Jesus identifies as the father's only son. An only son, in Jesus' context, has a special relationship with the father. In a patriarchal society where everything is passed on to male heirs, not only land and wealth, but honor, uh, an only son is irreplaceable. The father will have a strong mentorship role because the father will be preparing the only son to carry on that legacy. And there will be a strong protector role because you got to got to protect that only son because he's the only one. 
So the relationship between Jesus and his father is characterized in John by intimacy and trust and love. Jesus doesn't do anything without the knowledge of his father. His teaching comes from his father. All of his actions and words point to his father and give his father glory. In turn, the father loves Jesus, gives Jesus authority, and never leaves him alone. Jesus' father is always with him. Even when the disciples desert Jesus, Jesus says, but father, you are still with me. It's less explicit, but the Spirit is also a part of all of this. At the beginning of John, in John 3, there's an uh, image of this, the Spirit resting on Jesus, and the phrase that's used is, in an unlimited measure. So there's a sense of this overflowing Spirit with Jesus as well, but it's much quieter. Throughout all of this, the line between Jesus and the Father is really fuzzy. Oh. Who did that? What, uh, is this, who, who acted here? Whose words are these? Um, and that's intentional because they're both God. They have the same purpose, the same mission, and they abide together in love, obedience, and glory. And it can't be separated out. So then in the second half of the gospel, Jesus' language shifts. He uses similar language as he used to the Father, but now he's using it to describe, what would you think? What you should say is the Spirit. (laughs) So that I could say, you would think it would be the Spirit, but it's actually the disciples. (laughs) One commentator I read said, The disciples are the next link in the chain that links God the Father to God the Son. So it's like God the Father, God the Son, and the disciples. They're all connected. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing that the disciples and us, by extension, get to be part of that chain, this chain of the personhood of God. There are a number of language parallels in John that demonstrate this. Just as the, and the most important, I'm not going to go through all of them, the most important one is just as the Father loved Jesus, Jesus loved the disciples, is what he says. But the Spirit is what we want to say, and that's because it's the same. When, When the Spirit comes, the Spirit dwells in the disciples. So when we say disciples, the Spirit is assumed. That's how closely the Spirit draws God's children into the life of the triune God. The passage we read that uh, Tom read from Psalm 8 today rings of this too. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? You have made them a little lower than God. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. Glory, honor, dominion, these are all words that describe the work of the Spirit, the Spirit working through people. But they also describe the relationship among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, They give each other glory. They give each other honor. They share dominion. So when Jesus speaks of the disciples, the Spirit is so entwined with their identities that he's also speaking of the Spirit. There's that fuzziness, that fuzziness that's used 
to describe the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is also present in the relationship between the Spirit and the disciples. Jesus has not abandoned them. Instead, by giving them the Spirit, he's drawn them even more deeply into the life of God, more so even than when Jesus is with them bodily. When Jesus was on earth, uh, there was a limit to who could be in his physical presence. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit of Jesus is available to everyone. There's another fuzziness between Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus' identification with the Spirit is so strong that he says, he himself will dwell with the disciples through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes clear that the Spirit is given to us, to those who believe the message that the disciples bring as he prays in John 17. And so now we too are drawn into the life of the triune God. If the disciples are the next link in the chain that connects the Father and Jesus, it's because of the Spirit's indwelling in the disciples. When Jesus first told the disciples he was going to be leaving them, they had no idea how that could end well. Even with the promise of the Spirit, the actual practicalities of what that would look like were a mystery to them. How could they know? that Jesus' departure would lead to his wider presence on earth, his indwelling in them. As, As they slowly came to understand this and experience this, there was a lot of pain and confusion and uncertainty before the ends became clear. And in a lot of ways, we are often in a similar place that the disciples were when Jesus was speaking to them. There are a lot of things that I can't imagine how they would end well. And there's pain and confusion and uncertainty as we walk that journey to the ends God has in mind. I suspect, though I don't know, if you, that, uh, I don't know if you all have the CRC's synod, occupying as much of your mental and emotional space as I do. Uh, I get the sense that that might be the case, because Tony's brought it up already this morning. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm kind of jealous. Um, (laughs) But I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) So if you're not familiar with synod, synod is a gathering of representatives from the Christian Reformed Church in North America. I um, know we have some synod delegates in the room now, so thank you so much and blessings to you. The task of synod is to make decisions around order, doctrine, worship, and practices of the Christian Reformed Church as a whole, and the Sherman Street is part of the Christian Reformed Church. In this year, Synod is deliberating on a number of really highly charged reports, including white supremacy, the relationship between Canadian and American governance in the church, and the human sexuality report. If you're not familiar with the human sexuality report, uh, the most important thing to know is that it it has a, its result is, that, is a very hurtful position around LGBTQ people in particular. 
and there have been a lot of reactions all around to this report. Uh, a lot of pain already, a lot of hurt and confusion. And people are going into these discussions with very strong opinions, and they're throwing around words like orthodoxy in really painful ways um, and combative ways, and the stakes are high. Um, and sometimes when I talk to people about uh, what might happen, I jump between hope and despair at what the outcome could be. And sometimes I can't imagine how things will end well. In two weeks, maybe it will seem that Synod had the worst possible outcome. Maybe not. I pray not. Two weeks ago, it felt like gun violence had reached its worst possible outcome. And I've felt that before, too. I don't get it. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's hard for me to imagine a good outcome. But the doctrine of the Trinity, God's revelation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gives me comfort knowing that I've been drawn into the life of the triune God. That God does not abandon us. God has not abandoned Synod. God has not abandoned Synod delegates. God has not abandoned us at Sherman Street. No matter what happens, God has drawn us into this relationship of love and life and joy and trust. And we're sustained by locating ourselves in that relationship. I really appreciated Chris Eakin's words many months ago when he was up here giving a focus on ministry on Synod, and he said something like, although we may not see a way forward, we trust that God will find a way. That is the trust we have when we're drawn into the life of our God who is present and active. And so that brings us to one more aspect of being drawn into the life of the triune God. Throughout John, Jesus consistently refers to the Father as the one who sent him. And so then in the second half of the gospel, that language changes to him sending. And he alternatively uses that language to refer to sending the Spirit and sending the disciples. When the disciples have the Spirit, when you send one, you send the other. So as we are drawn into the life of the triune God, we are now sent. The Spirit is now sent. The Spirit is sent to act through us. Jesus began his ministry on earth, and the ministry of the Spirit is to advance God's mission through God's children, through each one of us, in all the contexts that we find ourselves. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the God that is, reve is revealed to us as the God who is active yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we're not passive, powerless observers. We are part of the triune God's work. The Spirit is active in us, and we may be surprised at what God can do. And sometimes that's in big ways, and sometimes that's in small ways. I mean, Henry is like prime example of that. I remember, it's hard to remember snow right now, but um, when it snowed, one time when it snowed, I remember Henry um, just shoveling out just the lines in the parking lot. Um, and 
we needed that. Because <laughs> it turns out part of the parking lot that didn't have the lines shoveled out was utter chaos. Um, but the part that was, like, we was all nice and orderly and we fit many more cars in it. And I ha wouldn't even have thought that that was necessary, but Henry noticed it was necessary uh, and, and did that for us as a service. A number of years ago, I was on staff um, at a different church and a colleague was filling in the rest of the church staff regarding a particularly contentious council meeting that he'd been part of the night before. Uh, and during a break in the meeting, he was walking down the hall of the church to get a drink of water and feeling rather discouraged and beat down when our colleague Deb, who was responsible for the finances of the church, left her office and was walking down the hall toward him. And he said that in, moment, in that moment, he looked at Deb and saw the face of Jesus, encouraging him and giving him strength for the rest of the meeting. And Deb was a little taken aback when he told this story. Deb wasn't doing anything unusual or special. She was just being Deb. But Deb is a disciple of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent by Jesus in that moment to minister. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This is the work of the triune God in us. We live the mission of God every day because the Spirit dwells in us. We've been drawn into this relationship characterized by obedience and deference and listening and joy and love and flourishing. Like Jesus, our participation uh, requires pouring ourselves out in relationship. It's the love and power of the triune God that at once sends us out, and draws us in. Go in that power. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are active in so many ways throughout history, throughout our lives, today in the world. And you reveal that to us in beautiful ways that draw us in. Thank you for making us part of your overflowing, effervescent life. May your work continue through us in our jobs, in our families, and this week in Synod. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.